I just want to say special thanks to the band and everybody up here. You know, every weekend they do this twice. They're here at uh, 9, or actually they get here before 8, and they're here all the way past noon. So I just want to say thanks. If you see that anybody playing in the band, you should just stop them and say thank you because of the time and effort they put in. It's absolutely amazing. It's a testimony. I was telling them this morning to the love of God that you see in them. So I just want to say thanks. Uh, this is the last week in this series, I think I said that earlier, that of the series that we've titled A Rising Tide, where we've been looking at this biblical value of accountability. And we've been looking at it through the life of Jesus' disciples, his, his disciples that he walked with, and the disciples that came after, and we see that in Jesus' life. And we said in week one of the series that God himself is accountable. He's accountable to his own word. In fact, there's not a word that he's spoken that he did not hold himself accountable to that he is completely trustworthy, that he is the ultimate accountability partner. And we saw that as the accountability partner, he calls us to be accountable not only to him, but to one another. For our benefit and for the good of the church, we're called to hold ourselves accountable to his mission, his plan, his will for our lives. And last week we looked at this idea that our values, there's those core beliefs that we have within us, can sometimes, we, our actions can get out of step, can be a little bit incongruent with our beliefs. And when it does, it causes this, this dissonance within us. And we need to invite people into our life that are leaders, and we need to be willing to be led and lead others so that we can line up our beliefs and our values together. And we said last week that sometimes when that incongruity happens, we're faced with a couple of choices. We can actually change our behavior or we can change our beliefs but in order to do that and in the way that god would call us to do we really need to invite others into our lives to to help us but the question i want to look at today is how how do we actually change our beliefs or change our behavior and is it possible for us to change our beliefs and change our behavior to line up more with what god has called us to do in our life that's the question i want to look at this morning uh, but before we get there, I'd ask if you would bow your heads and pray with me because I need your help and I need God's help. Father in heaven, we gather this morning in the name of Jesus and I pray and I pray with everyone here that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, that my words would be your words and that your words would mold and shape every single one of us more into the image of your son. And I pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if, if I were to ask you um, a question and said, think of a famous American architect, who would you think of? Anybody? Frank Lloyd Wright. How did I know that? <laughs> because he is the most popular American architect. In fact, the Architect Institute voted him the most influential architect of all time in the United States. And it's because he's designed so many different buildings, and especially here in the Chicagoland area, which, you know, he went to school in Madison, but he lived in Oak Park, and you see his work all over, not just here in the Chicagoland area, but around the world. He's had an influence on architecture everywhere. And he tells a story about his life when he was a little boy, when he was nine years old, and he was walking with his uncle. An uncle he described as like no-nonsense kind of guy. And so him and his uncle were walking across a snowy field. And he said when he got to the other end of the field, his uncle looked back and he said, Frank, look, I want you to look at our steps. He says, if you look at my steps, you'll notice they go in a straight line from where we started to where we're at. But when you look at your steps, 
you see they like meander all over the place. They go from the, from the path to the cows to the trees, and they're all over the place. He says there's a lesson to be learned in this. And then later in life, he would tell, this, he would tell that story, and he said that moment was a very foundational, life-changing moment for him. And, and, this, is, <laughs> and this is what he said. <laughs> he said that day... What his uncle taught him, taught him that he needed to enjoy the journey unlike his uncle. (laughs) That he needed to value the things in life that his uncle missed. And and that was just like, if, if you look at his life, you see that there was more than just architecture to his life, more than just building buildings. There was a passion to it that that exhibited who he was. You saw, in his, you saw in his work a passion, not just trying to make a building and functional. He was actually, had, had, there was something deeper going on there. And he said that comment just formed and shaped his entire life. You see, they both had the same goal, right? That day was to cross the field, but they did so differently because within them, they were like, there was a difference within them. And they both had a goal, right? This goal is the object of a person's ambition or effort, an aim, a desired result. They, they both had a goal of going across the field, which is a good thing. We should have goals in our lives. If the goal wasn't to build a building, then, then why become an architect? Why, if, why, if not just buildings, but structures, why? Goals are good. They get us to accomplish the things we want to accomplish. But there's a difference between him and his uncle, and it was what they valued. See, what his uncle valued was getting across the field as fast as possible in a straight line, right? But what Frank Lloyd Wright valued was the journey, right? A value is, is a destination, but a, but a goal is a destination, but a value is, is about the journey. A value is about how you get there, not just getting there. And so a value is something that is a core belief that guides and motivates our attitudes and our actions. It's these deeply held beliefs that, that really form who we are and, decide and make, help us make decisions in our life. In fact, a, a so, social psychologist, a researcher, Stephen Hayes, says this, values are what bring distinction to your life and what sets your life apart. He says, you don't find them. You don't find values. You actually choose them. And when you think about that from a Christian perspective, isn't the call of Christianity something that's distinct from all other worldviews, all other religions? It's something that sets the Christian life apart from every other worldview. To simplify it, you know, the Christian worldview is it's not about what you do, it's about what God has done. Every other worldview says it's about what you do that earns God's favor where the Christian worldview says, no, it's because God loves you, because you already have favor in his eyes, that you are valuable to him. And so it's a worldview that is distinct, and its values are distinct. The Christian life is one that's meant to be distinct from the culture around us, distinct from every other religion that we see, but the challenge is is that it becomes more like every other worldview. It kind of morphs and changes. And we need to hold to these values 
these core beliefs, but in order to do that, we need assistance and we need help. I love what Frank Lloyd Wright said about what is an architect. And maybe you've seen this quote, maybe you haven't. But he says, the mission of an architect is to help people understand how to make life more beautiful, the world a better one for living in, and to give reason, rhyme, and meaning to life. The mission of an architect isn't to build buildings, right? The building helps you accomplish the mission. He has a much bigger picture. You can see in this quote what he truly values, and that is helping people, helping people flourish. What if you change that word architect to Christian? I think you could say the same thing. I think that's what we're called as Christians to do, is to make this world a better place to help people flourish. As Jesus said, I came so that you could have life abundantly, and he calls us to bring that life into existence through our life, right? And to help people and to give reason and rhyme and meaning to life. And it's how we live that life, the values that underpin that life, that speak to the world of a distinct difference that knowing Jesus can make in a person's life. But today in our culture, and I would argue for probably since Jesus' time and before, that is difficult when we exist and live within a culture that's counter to that of the biblical worldview. In fact, that same social psychologist, Stephen Hayes, this is what he says when, in an article about the importance of values. He said, I'd argue that it is harder than ever for people, and especially young people, to know what they value. Modern technology has created a fire hose of information in the expansion of communication media. The gush of words and images we have unleashed on ourselves risks psychologically overwhelming us. We always struggled with these matters, but never have we had such a toxic brew in which people are comparing themselves with others, judging others and themselves, and trying hard to avoid discomfort. We need to do better at creating modern minds for this modern world so that we can more directly connect our behavior to what we deeply value. That is especially true for our children and adolescents. Our nurturance is especially needed to help them choose what they care about beyond the evaluative, judgmental mind and its yearnings. They get little help from our commercial culture. They have to find another way to relate to their own minds. Trying to find a way to figure out what to value in this culture is a challenge for our children, and I would argue it's a challenge for all of us, but especially for our children and especially when they grow up in a house where there's mixed messages or in a culture where there's mixed messages or in a church where there are mixed messages, where our words and our actions don't kind of line up, where what we say we believe and how we act are two different things. And it's confusing. And so there's a value in us helping one another actually live consistently to help our values and our actions line up. And to do that, we need to do so with others' help. We need someone to lead us. But the question I ask is, how? How do we actually help one another? Other than saying, be more like Jesus. How can we do that? And, and is it possible 
for us to actually change our beliefs, change our behavior. And I think in this morning's text, we get an answer to that question. I really do believe it's there. And you heard it read earlier, and and you heard Jessica read these words. Well, not these words. This is our mission. But these words that says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do you see the the key here to changing or the key to holding one another accountable or actually changing our behavior and our actions? You know, we look at that and we say, well, yeah, it's like being compassionate and kind and and humble and gentle and patient and, and, and forgive. Those are all really good things that we're called to do. But is that the key or just a different set of behaviors? You guys, I don't know if you've read the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. He talks about how we can actually change our habits. And this is one of the things that he says in this book. He says, behavior that is incongruent with the self will not last. Right? If we're trying to be somebody that we're not, we can do that for a short while, but it won't last. You have a new goal and a new plan, but you haven't changed who you are. Does that make sense? Right? It's like, we want to do this, but we're really not that person. And so we can do it for a while, but it doesn't change because our core values, our, our core beliefs aren't in line with the actions that we, our, our new outcomes that we want to take. He gives an example like this, how our beliefs, how who we see ourselves to be changes. He says, think about smoking, for example. Someone wants to quit smoking. And they go to a party and someone says, offers them a cigarette and they say, I'm sorry, I'm trying to quit smoking. He says, do you see what they're saying? I'm a smoker who's trying to quit smoking. Rather, seeing themselves as somebody that says, no, thank you, I don't smoke. I'm not a smoker. It changes who you are. It comes from an understanding that that's not who I am. And right here in this text, are the same words that inform us. It's the key. It's therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's the key to change. That is the key to who you are. Who you are is God's chosen people. It's not who you will be. It's not who I'm working to become. I'm not working to become chosen by God. No, I'm already chosen by God. I'm already holy, set apart, different. That's who I am. I'm not working on becoming holy. I'm already holy in God's sight. And I am deeply loved. See, so often it's like I'm working at being a Christian. I'm working at being better. And in God's sight, he says, you already are right now. From his perspective, you are holy and dearly loved, and he chose you. The the challenge is when you look in the mirror, that's not the person you see. Right? And, And if we're honest, and Scripture tells us we need to be honest, and if we say we're without sin, we make God out to be a liar, so we know we're not perfect. We know we aren't holy, 
But yet, that's what God's Word says that we are. We are already those things. In His sight, in His presence, we are already that person. The, the challenge is, it's actually living into who we are. Because we don't fully believe that is how God sees us. Because for you and I, I, I I'm sorry, but that's just really hard to understand. Because Scripture says, I'm sinful, I'm, I'm not perfect. But on the other hand, it says, I already am. And in reality, we are. But how do we live into that when we ourselves find it difficult to see ourselves that way? We need help. We need one another to remind us who we are. Because it's out of who we are that our habits and our values are formed. If we're just trying to be compassionate or be gentle or be loving, those are just behaviors. If we want to change our behaviors, if we truly want to change, Scripture reminds us over and over again, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And that sounds like oversimplified, but that's exactly what Scripture tells us over and over and over and over again. Paul starts this whole section by reminding us who we are. It's out of that identity. It's out of that core understanding, that core belief that flows compassion, humility, gentleness, kindness, patience, and love. If... if you find yourself lacking in compassion and gentleness and humility, it's because you don't fully understand who you are. You can't and haven't yet grasped the love that God has for you, the lengths to which he's gone for you. That's the struggle within the human heart, is to truly grasp why this perfect being would do that for me, this imperfect person I see in the mirror every day. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge we cannot overcome on our own, which is why he's given us this church and why he's given us his spirit to remind us of things that we forget. That we are deeply loved, we are holy and set apart for his purpose. And he chose us knowing how screwed up and messed up we are. He chose us. But he did so for a purpose because he loves you. And then he goes on to say in this text, Paul does, and above all these virtues, put on love. It's love that binds all of this together. It's love that holds all of this together and gives us the motivation the desire to actually be compassionate and kind and gentle. It's love that is the motivation. It's the underlying value that makes the Christian life distinct from every other worldview. It's a love, as we see, that is found in Jesus. It's to put on the love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ it's the love of Jesus that binds us together. It's the love of Jesus that motivates us, that actually changes our heart and makes it possible for us to be truly 
gentle and kind and loving and humble. It starts from the inside out, and it begins with understanding who you are in Jesus. And it reminds us you are that because of that. That is who he says that you are. You know, oftentimes, and, and you've heard me say this before, we say, God, I love you. I cannot believe you would love me like that. I, I, I want to pour out my love on you. How can I do that? And, and he says in Scripture, love your neighbor. And you're like, I understand all that. I just want to love you. Show me how I can just be more in love with you. And Jesus says, love your neighbor. And we're like, I don't like my neighbor a whole lot. I really love you. And I really want to pour all my love on you, Jesus. Just let me pour out my love on you. And Jesus says, you can't divorce those two. You want to love me? Love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't separate the two commandments. When asked, what is the greatest commandment? He gives us both. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't separate them. He preaches them as one command. It's love the Lord your God. It's out of the love that he has for you that your love flows. It's an understanding of that love, which is why Solomon tells us to guard our hearts. It's guard what you put in to your minds, what you put in to your thoughts, because the culture around us is contrary to the teachings of Scripture, contrary to the teachings of Jesus, contrary to the idea that you are to consider others better than yourself. Where is that message? Anywhere in our culture. Other than in the Christian life. Consider others, your neighbor, as better than yourselves. To serve them, not to look to be served, but to serve them, just as Jesus served you. See, we serve them, we, we love them, not to show God, not to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor, we love our neighbor. But that's hard to do when we don't understand how much God loves us. When we lose sight of just how much he's loved us. Which is why the Apostle Paul goes on to say this, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell among you it's not just a, a you, singular. It's that, you heard it say, it's that y'all, right? And then it's all y'all. It's like, let the word of Christ dwell among all y'all richly. And that word richly there can be translated as valuable. Let this word be valuable of utmost importance in you. It is that word where you understand the truth about who you are and who God is, and what he's called you to. It's in his word that we admonish and hold one another accountable and to encourage one another with all wisdom, as Jesus has done. That's what we are called to do together. But to do that, we have to hold one another accountable to that ideal because 
left to our own. We won't do that. That is hard. But when we do, Jesus said, when you do have that kind of unity, what you find is that it's a testimony to the world that we are his disciples. When we actually live together as he's called us, it testifies. It's a distinct worldview that testifies to the world of a different way to live. That is how Jesus overcame the world. Not by doing things and ruling the way the world rules, but differently. He led differently. He led as a servant. And he calls us to do the same. And then he finishes this exhortation. Well, actually, Peter, I want to share this with you. Peter says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. See, Peter's talked to a group of people like you this morning. And he's taught them in First and Second Peter 1 things that they already know. And he's preaching to them. You get this idea that he's preaching to them to something that he's taught them over and over and over and over and over again. The things you've heard me say this morning for most of you aren't new. There are things that you've heard said a hundred times, and some of you have said, yeah, this is the same message I heard last week and the same one I heard the week before that and the same one I heard the week before that. Some of you, it might be a new message. Some of you, you may have heard this for the very first time. I pray it's not the last time. Because here's what Peter goes on to say to this group of people. He says, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Do you hear what Peter's saying? Yeah, you know these things. You've been taught these things, but here's the problem. You're forgetful. You forget these things. We all forget these things, even though we're taught them over and over and over and over again. We walk out of here this morning and we, we go to brunch, or we walk out of here this morning, we go cut our yards, we, we go take a nap this afternoon. And it's so easy for us to forget God's Word. And that is why we need to be held accountable. That is why we preach small groups. Because this gathering on Sunday, while a valuable, important gathering, is a part of the Christian life. It is not the Christian life. The Christian life is gathering together in small groups to be reminded by one another what Jesus has said. To be reminded who we are. And it's out of that identity that flows the Christian life that's distinct from every other worldview. We're called into a relationship of accountability with God and with one another for the sake of people that don't know him. So that we together can be a shining light in this world that is different. That is marked by grace and humility and gentleness and kindness and love a light that just shines bright into a dark world, a light that, that really illuminates what we truly value, and that all flows out of an identity of who we are in Jesus. 
Paul goes on to finish this section, and he says, and so whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see what he, he, he highlights here? It's not just in what we say. It's not just standing up here on Sunday morning and, and saying what God's word says. No, it's actually living like that. It's actually being willing to, to be in a small group, to lead and be led by others. It's actually doing what Jesus taught. And that takes some encouragement. That takes some admonishment. That takes some willingness to be led and to lead others for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of those people that don't know him. Not just in what we say, but in what we do, our actions as well. We need to speak, but we need to follow up those words with action. Do you guys remember if you were here at the very first weekend of the series, I used this illustration of this marshmallow test. And it was this test, for those of you that weren't here, it's this test where psychologists were testing children's ability to delay gratification. And so they put a marshmallow on a table in a room and they left them there and said, if you can wait 15 minutes and not eat this marshmallow, I'll come back and give you a second one. Right, and a vast majority of the kids couldn't make it. But then in last year, a, a group of psychologists out of San Diego, they, they tried a little nuance. They added some accountability to the test and they told, a handful of students that they would tell their peers how long they waited, and another group of students, they said they would tell their teachers how long they waited. And to another group, they didn't tell anything. And what happened was, the group who they said that they would tell their teacher waited twice as long as the group that, that they said they would tell their peers. And way longer than the group where they didn't tell, say anything. And it showed us that kids understand accountability. But here's the other thing that they found in this study that I wanted to point out that I kind of waited for this weekend was, here's the thing. No one told the children waiting was good. But somehow they inferred that waiting was good. How is that? Well, psychologists know, and you know it, if you're a parent or if you're a child, <laughs> you're observant. Children are like little scientists. They're always watching. And they're very adept, even at young age, like four and five years old, of picking up these inferences. And they're picked up by what you do, not so much by what you say. They understood that waiting is good because it's something they've seen. Remember what the psychologist said earlier? He said that it's extremely difficult especially for young people today, for adolescents, for youth, to understand and, and where to find true values in life. And he said that they needed help, right? He says, our youth have been taught another way to relate to their own minds, a way that is distinct from their culture around us. That's what they need to be shown, a different way, not just spoken, but shown in our actions. Not just speaking about how small groups are important, but actually showing our children that small groups is important by actually getting into a small group, by actually being willing to be led and to hold one another accountable. To actually doing what Jesus said. The worst thing that we can do for our children is to say one thing about Jesus and then actually live a different way. It not only creates dissonance within our life, it creates 
great amount of dissonance within the lives of children, trying to figure out what's a value and what isn't. And where they infer that is in the life of the adults, especially within their family, but also within their church. When we say children matter in our congregation, do we actually live like that? Do we actually give our lives to our children in this congregation? See, we've said in this series that we're accountable to God because God is the accountable, accountability partner. He's accountable to himself, and we're called to be accountable to one another, and we're called to lead and be led and, and to do so with patience and kindness and love. But we're also accountable to the youngest generations in our midst because they're searching for values, values that will guide and direct the choices they make in their life, values that are distinct from the world around us. And we are called to teach them and mold them and shape them and show them that life. But I would also argue this morning, we're not just accountable to them. We're accountable to the generations that have yet to come. The children of our children and the children of our children's children. We are accountable to them, the way the disciples of Jesus were accountable to us. And they lived in relationship and held one another accountable, not just for themselves, but for the world to come and for those people that have yet to know Jesus. And that's what we're called to be. That beacon of hope and life, teaching and showing the world a different way to live, guided by different values. Values that are distinct from the world around us, but values that, that give our life meaning and purpose and actually show us in the world what it is to flourish, what it is to be human. And we have that opportunity, but it's a choice. It's a choice. So my question for you at the end of this series is, Will you take up that challenge? Will, will you make a choice to be held accountable, to lead and to be led for the sake of the people that don't know him and for the sake of those generations that are youngest among us and for the sake of the generations yet to come so that they could get a picture of what it is to be a Christian, not perfect, but guided by a perfect God? Will you join us in... in, in in living into this value of accountability for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of the youngest, and for the sake of those yet to come. I pray you will for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we do give you thanks and praise for your faithfulness, that regardless of how much we waver, you are continually at work. You remind us this morning that we are chosen. We are holy and set apart. We are deeply loved. But Father, we admit to you this morning that we still wander and we still doubt and we still follow our own path and we do so because we, we really cannot fathom that you would love us this way. But Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would remind us through your word that you are a keeper of your promises. And then when we confess our sins, you are faithful and true to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
that you have never gone back on a promise. Father, we thank you for being the God who loves us and who is patient with us, a God who is love. Father, we give you thanks and praise. I pray that would sink into our hearts deeper today than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen.